This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to the July edition of One Month to a Better Compliance Program. This month, we're going to focus on One Month to Better Internal Controls. This month's sponsor is Workiva, and first, I'd like to have a word from our sponsor. Thanks, Tom. Workiva delivers a modern internal control solution that connects risk and internal control information across the enterprise. The WS Cloud Platform is collaborative, powerful, and intuitive, and optimizes documentation, testing, approval, and reporting processes. The platform is proven to increase productivity and drive better decision-making, and is used by more than 2,800 organizations worldwide for financial reporting and ICFR processes. To learn more, visit www.workiva.com. Over the next month, I'm going to explore several topics related to internal controls. We're going to take a look at what internal controls are and how they relate to a best practices compliance program. I'm going to help you understand how to design an internal controls regime for compliance and then some of the specific internal controls for the functional disciplines within a corporate compliance program. We're going to take a look at the COSO 2013 framework around internal controls and explain how that integrates into your best practices compliance program. I think it'll be a fascinating uh, month for you. We'll certainly uh, explore the area of eternal controls in depth. This podcast, One Month to a Better Compliance Program, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Day three, the four key internal controls for compliance. There are four key internal controls for the compliance practitioner. They are, number one, delegation of authority. Number two, maintenance of the vendor master file, number three, contracts with third parties, and number four, movement of cash and currency. A delegation of authority should reflect the impact of compliance risk, including both transactions and geographic locations, so that a higher level of approval for matters involving third parties and for fund transfers and invoice payments to countries outside the U.S. would be a would be required within or inside of an organization. Quite often, a delegation of authority is prepared without much thought being given to compliance risks. Unfortunately, once a delegation of authority is prepared, it is not used again until it is time to update for personnel changes. It is often not available, not kept current, or does not define authority in a way even approvers could understand. Therefore, it is incumbent that a delegation of authority be integrated into a company's accounts payable processing system in a manner that ensures high-risk vendors' invoices receive proper visibility. To achieve this, you should identify vendors within the vendor master file so payments are flagged appropriately before they are paid. Furthermore, if a delegation of authority is properly prepared and enforced, it can be a powerful preventive tool for compliance. To support this, consider the following example. A wire transfer of X between company bank accounts in the United States might require approval of a finance manager at the initiating location and one officer. However, a wire transfer of the same amount of money to the company's bank account in Nigeria could require approval of multiple persons, including a finance person, uh, someone in the compliance function, and a corporate officer. In this situation, the delegation of authority should specify who should give the final approval for not only engaging such third parties, but paying such third parties. 
Moreover, the DO, uh, delegation of authority should address replenishment of petty cash funds outside the U.S., as well as approval of expense reports for employees who tra- work outside the U.S., including those who travel from the U.S. to work outside the U.S. Next, the vendor master file. This can be one of the most powerful preventive tools, largely because payments to fictitious vendors are one of the most common occupational frauds, including FCPA and other compliance violations. The vendor master file should be structured so that each vendor can be identified not only by the risk level, but also on the date on which the vetting was completed and the vendor received final approval. There should be electronic controls in place to block payments to any vendor for which vetting has not been approved. Vendor master controls are needed over the submission, approval, and input of changes to the vendor master file. These controls include verification that all vendors have been approved before their information is inputted into the vendor master file. Finally, manual controls are needed when one-time vendors are requested or when the vendor name or vendor payment information changes are submitted. Next, near and dear to my own heart as a lawyer are contracts with third parties, which in, in addition to being legally significant, can be a very effective internal control which works to prevent nefarious conduct rather than simply as a detect control. Contracts to provide, for contracts to provide effective internal controls, relevant terms of the contracts, commission rate, whether business expenses can be reimbursed and use of sub-agents should be extracted and available to those who process and approve the vendor invoices. If you think about this in terms of the compliance terms and conditions, that would equally apply as well. If there are non-conforming service descriptions, such, such as commission rates, etc., present in the contract terms, they must be approved not only by the original approver, but by a person so delegated under a delegation of authority for such issues. Unfortunately, such contracts are usually not or typically not integrated into an internal control system. They are left off to the side on their own, usually gathering dust in the legal file department, or I suppose now in a very soft copy, electronically stored. The Hewlett-Packard FCPA enforcement action was an excellent example of the lack of internal controls over the disbursement of funds and the movement of currency because you had the country manager in Poland literally delivering bags of cash to a Polish government official to obtain or retain business. Think about this, because it was $600,000 paid out of the trunk of a car of the Poland country manager to a government official for a bribe to obtain contracts by HP in Poland. So the question, of course, is where did the country manager get that sort of money? All of the situations where funds can be sent outside the U.S., uh, computer checks, manual checks, wire transfers, replenishment of petty uh, petty cash, loans, etc., should be reviewed from a compliance risk standpoint. Within a given company structure, you need to identify the ways in which a country manager or even a sales manager could cause such funds to be transferred to their control and conceal the true nature of the funds within the accounting system. To prevent these types of activities, internal controls need to be in place. Here's yet another example. All while transfers outside the U.S. should have defined approvals in the delegation of authority, and the persons who execute the wire transfers should be required to give evidence agreement of the approvals to the uh, delegation of authority and wire transfer requests going out. In other words, they should always have dual approvals. 
Lastly, wire transfer requests going outside the U.S. should be required to include a description of proper business purpose. I think it's important to recognize that internal controls are really just good financial controls. Internal controls for third-party representatives should help detect fraud, which would prevent any bribery and corruption going forward. So what are today's three key takeaways? Well, number one, it's really four, but I've got to say them again because they're really four key internal controls you need to have. Delegation of authority, maintenance of your vendor master file, contracts with third parties, and then movements of cash and currency across borders. Number two, Internal controls act as both detect but also prevent controls. And this is significant because what you want to move your compliance program to is beyond detection to prevention. Because if you can prevent something from either happening or an illegal act arising after indicia uh, of uh, nefarious acts have arisen, this is uh, protect, will protect your uh, company more greatly. And finally, number three. Never forget that internal compliance controls are really good internal financial controls and that they will help your company run not only more efficiently, but at the end of the day, more profitably. And when compliance can tie directly into corporate profitability, that not only is the holy grail of compliance, but it shows how operationalizing your compliance program will make you a better run company. I hope you've enjoyed day three of one month to better internal controls, and I hope you'll join me tomorrow for day four. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of One Month to Better Internal Controls. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate this podcast as it would help in our rankings. Get the word out about the only one-month podcast series which enables you to design, implement, and enhance a better compliance program. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.